Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. In this series that we've been working through, we've been looking at the tactics of the enemy so that we can see them coming, so that we can recognize the temptation when it comes, when it emerges even in ourselves. Tactics the enemy uses to try to destroy us. Tactics that separate us as sheep from the fold so that the enemy, like a roaring lion, might devour us. Tactics, in a nutshell, that try to get us off the track from, from both discovering who we really are before God or by stealing the very identity that God has given to us. According to recent publications, someone in North America becomes the victim of identity theft now once in le every, less than every two seconds. So more than 30 a, a minute, somewhere in North America alone, North America alone, are, being, are, ha are having their identities stolen. It, it amounts to about 42,000 people a day at a cost of some 17 billion, with a B, dollars per year. By the way, that's a 15-fold increase in the last 10 years. But as you've heard from Pastor Stefan, this, this attempt at stealing our identity has been going on much longer than the past 10 years. In fact, since the beginning of creation. The Bible says Satan has been trying to kill, steal, and destroy since Adam and Eve in the garden. So with this in mind, we've been on this journey to expose the culprits and learn how we are protected when we place ourselves under Christ's umbrella. A while back, the New York Times carried this story. <clears throat> It was a big, nasty surprise when Chevron King Lewis, a 23-year-old single mom from Atlanta, checked her credit report. She found that someone had opened more than 25 credit card accounts, taken out loans, and filed for a marriage license in her name. Lewis tracked down the culprit, a former Taco Bell co-worker of hers, who stayed with her for a time out of her kindness and must have gone through her possessions to obtain the necessary information. Her ex-colleague allegedly had run up $37,000 in U.S. funds in charges, including the purchase of a car. Chevron says this, it's really scary knowing that someone else has been living my life. You might say she'd been tackled for a loss. It'll sink in, it'll sink in. <laughs> That's scary, isn't it? To think that somebody else is living your life. You know what? I see it all the time. I see people all the time allowing something or someone to live their lives. I watch high school students who will do just about anything and turn into just about anybody in order to be accepted by a certain group or a certain guy or a certain girl. Why do gangs flourish? Why do you think people so readily give up on their bodies, sexually speaking? It's because there's this need to be accepted. Why do men and women compromise their values at work? Why do we care so much about what other people think or say about us? Why do we end up in codependent patterns and relationships where we just need to be needed? It's because we're looking to have significance in our lives. We're looking to find out who we are. We're, we're looking to see what our born identity is. So we spend our lives trying to cram the square peg of relationships with imperfect people into the round hole of our heart, and our identity gets stolen and we lose control or forget who we really are. This isn't what God intended for you and me when he breathed life into our beings. He never intended for us to relinquish the control of our lives over to anyone other than to him. 
He gave us life, a born identity, and he wants for us to be just who he created us to be. I want to take you back now, a few thousand years in time, to a whole new era in the life of the people of Israel, the era of the kings. They had been crying out to their spiritual leader, Samuel, that they wanted a king. So now, we're going to take a brief look at how this whole king thing worked out. One of the saddest things to see is to see something that was once strong and useful and vigorous and full of beauty fall into a state of decay, isn't it? Think of a company that in its day was full of purpose and mission and dreams for the future, but loses vision and drifts into stagnation and plummets morally and people lose their jobs. What was once hoped for is never realized, and the whole organization just basically goes into a waiting pattern until it goes under. Think of a neighborhood that in its day was new and full of hope for the future, full of possibilities for community, culture, growth. But something happens and it falls victim to apathy or crime or poverty, and people flee from it and it ends up just a shell of what it was. And we always wonder, what went wrong? What happened? Sometimes I go home and I look at my body in the mirror and in its day it was, well, Actually, it never really had a day. <laughs> I'm still kind of hoping it will. But you understand what I'm talking about, right? It's a very painful thing to watch something decay because you remember what it once was. Or maybe even more painful, you think about what it might have become but never will. I believe of all the forms of decay, the very saddest form of decay and deterioration is the decay of the human soul, the human spirit. The person who allows their character to just sink into oblivion, allows their heart that was once full of life to just turn sour. To think about what they might have become, I think that's about the saddest thing of all. This is the story of such a man. The man who would be king of Israel. A man named Saul. When we first meet Saul, he's on a wild donkey chase. That's not a euphemism. He's actually on a wild donkey chase. Now, in Canada, we don't have wild donkeys running around, so we have to talk about wild geese, right? Wild goose chase. But the similarity applies. Now, I can tell you from personal experience that if you own livestock, this is your worst nightmare. On our farm, we had 100 or so black Angus cows, and easily my worst nightmare was that they would get out in the middle of a very dark, dark, dark night where I couldn't even see them, where they wore this perfect camouflage, and they'd be miles away by morning. Wait a minute, I think I still have that, that dream. At any rate, this, this fate has befallen the family of Saul, and he's been sent out to try and track the delinquent donkeys down, but they comb the craggy countryside and can't find them until finally, out of desperation, and there's kind of a little background to this, right? How often do we try and do everything ourselves and then we turn to God or to our spiritual leader? This is the same thing. He's been out everywhere looking for the donkeys. Finally, out of desperation, they go to Samuel, the spiritual leader. Unbeknownst to Saul, sort of like meanwhile back at the ranch kind of a thing happening here. While this is going on, God has actually indeed been talking to Samuel and telling him that Saul, who he has yet to meet, is the man who would be king. And so when they get together, not only is Samuel able to tell Saul where the donkeys are because God told him, 
he's also able to tell Saul he is to be the first king that the people want. Samuel says about him, do you see the man that the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Now that's a phrase used only a few times in scripture. It's a high compliment, isn't it? No one like him among all the people. Saul was also humble. When he found out that he was to be king, his response was, but I'm from the smallest tribe of Israel, and my clan is the smallest in the tribe. Why do you honor me? In fact, when he was first anointed king, his initial response was to just keep faithfully working on the farm. There was a generous spirit inside of Saul. That's part of what's so poignant about his life. But as is the case whenever there's a new leader, when he's first anointed king, there are some Israelites who aren't happy about that. Right after he's crowned king, some of Saul's followers come to him and say, Saul, where are these people who were opposing you becoming king? We'll take care of them for you. We'll put them to death. Destroying any internal opposition was commonly done in those days. But Saul says, no, no one shall put them to death. There's just this gracious, noble spirit about him, and people loved that. He was only 30 years old when he became king. He was tall, strong, humble. He was a warrior. He loved God, and the future looked bright. He was full of promise of what might be. He began so well. He reigned for 42 years, and when he died, all that promise was wasted. It was all lost. By then, he was tormented. He was a tormented man, driven by pathological jealousy, his mind and his emotions in ruins. He lost the respect of the people. His children were alienated from him. He was incapable of love or peace or joy. He was a shell of what he had once been. I look at all that promise that was in him at the start. I look at the tragedy that was in him at the end, and I wonder, how does this happen? How does a life deteriorate so badly? And the answer, of course, is nobody plans it. It just happens one slippery day at a time. Saul didn't set out to be wicked or violent. There are some characters in the Bible that are just kind of evil from the get-go, rebellious against God all the way, but Saul wasn't one of them. Do you see? He just drifted into it. The real problem, I think, was he was never courageous enough to choose, to name, to actually face the brokenness inside of himself. He chose rather to fall for one of the enemy's favorite temptations, one of the enemy's favorite tactics of all time, which was to excuse what my spirit knows is wrong. To look at another way, he rationalized the stain away. He rationalized the stain of sin away. He started to come up with what I call rational lies. Rational lies to excuse himself, allowing his mind to find reasons to excuse what his spirit knew deep inside was wrong. And friends, the reason this is so important to us is because I believe you and I face this tactic regularly and face the same tempting choice from the evil one. And so the question before us is, are we making good choices? Are we making right choices? Are you on the right track? Are you with a noble heart and a brave spirit opening yourself up to God the very best you can? I hope and pray you are. 
And I hope and pray that God will use things like words from real inadequate people, words and worship from real inadequate people like myself that God puts up here in front of you to keep you moving towards him. Because I believe that everybody here wrestles with deep brokenness. And perhaps the saddest thing of all is we don't want anybody else to know it. We hide behind trying to be as totally normal as everybody else appears to be. That's kind of a reassuring phrase when you think about it, isn't it? Totally normal. It has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I was in the ER a couple of weeks ago with some shoulder and chest pains that they checked me out for in case it was any heart issues, and the verdict came back. Everything looks totally normal. And that's a nice thing to think about yourself being, isn't it? Totally normal. It's kind of comforting to think that there are some wackos out there somewhere, but you and I, we're totally normal. We're strong, really, right? Healthy, we're in control, totally normal. So we can laugh at people or be shocked at people who are not totally normal, who struggle with something that we don't struggle with. But I believe this with all of my heart. Get any one of us alone, search deep enough within us, and eventually you will find in everybody an area of deep brokenness. A habit you can't fix. A train of thought you can't escape. Traits you can't run away from. And these are deeply troubling to us, and so we often seek to avoid them. The truth is, no one is totally normal. You've never seen a totally nor normal person, not as God intended normalcy to be. For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. So I want to give you a deep theological truth today, rooted in what we've discovered so far in this series. You're not normal. You're not normal, nor is the person sitting next to you in the way that God intended normal to be for us. Simply put, everyone is weird. I want you to hold on to that. So I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and say, everyone is weird. Go ahead, do that right now. Everyone is weird. Okay, oh, oh. you don't have to explain to them how they happen to embody this deep theological truth. Just three words was all I was looking for. There's no such thing as a totally normal person. Not as good God designed us to be. We all have this deep brokenness. Everybody's weird. The key is, will I have the courage and faith and to, to just face my own brokenness? I think when you come right down to it, that's the difference between two contemporaries that we will briefly look at today, Saul and David. Saul didn't have the courage to do that, and David did. You can see it throughout all the Psalms that he wrote. Two broken men, one of them faced his brokenness, and the other wouldn't. So how did Saul go wrong? How did he succumb to the tactics of the enemy? It's important because I believe the story of Saul is potentially the story of every one of us. I think we meet Saul not just in Scripture. I think we meet Saul right here. Right here. And I want to get as clear as I can with you today on what the telltale signs of spiritual drift and decline and the decay of the human spirit looks like because I want you to fight it with all the strength that God gives you. 
Certainly and absolutely, it takes the power of God in order to do that. But there is a role that God asks us to play. I want to walk you through what you might think of as four stages of spiritual decay. Stages in the decline of the human spirit and the rational lies we feed ourselves in the process. Here's the first stage. The first thing that Saul does is that Saul learns to rationalize subtle disobedience to God. He learns he can live with it because it's subtle. Here's two examples of this. Early in his reign, Israel is at war with the Philistines. And sent, like again and ongoing and Samuel gives instructions to Saul Samuel says Saul listen carefully I want you to go away to Gilgal and wait seven days I will come and offer a sacrifice and I'll instruct you in what God wants your job Saul is simply this one word to wait you got it Saul yep what's your job wait how long seven days Got it, Saul? It's the seventh day now. Samuel hasn't arrived yet. Saul thinks that maybe he's not going to come at all. And then things get rocky. The soldiers start to desert on him. Morale is going down the tubes. Saul gets anxious. Saul had one job to do. What was it again? Wait. Just wait. Just trust God. But he couldn't, wouldn't do it. He disobeys God and offers the sacrifice on his own. Let me digress here for a moment. What's the three-letter word that means disobeying God? Sin. Those of us who've lived for a while know there is a very important and sobering truth in the Bible about sin that bears remembering at this point. The children of Israel, we're digressing back a little while now, the children of Israel have been wandering around in the wilderness, in the desert. They've been wandering between Egypt and the land promised to them, the land we now know, of course, as Israel. They've come to the Jordan River and can see this promised land just laid out before them on the other side of the river. But it's occupied But what they perceive as some nasty-looking dudes. In Numbers 32, Moses is exhorting them. Arm themselves, and he tells them to arm yourselves before the Lord for the battle and cross over the Jordan and claim the land that God has promised even tells them that the Lord will drive his enemies out before him as they go, and the land will be theirs as promised. But then comes this warning. But, but if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Right? Parents, you've used this. Now you know where it is. And here come a couple examples of it. Just as Saul starts, you guessed it, Samuel shows up on the scene just as Saul is offering the sacrifice. Samuel says, what have you done? God asked you to do one thing. What was that one thing? Wait. Instead of acknowledging his anxiety and his disobedience, instead of coming clean and repenting and say, I just couldn't wait any longer. I'm sorry. Saul chooses, chooses the path of a rational lie. He rationalizes. He says, my men were deserting and the Philistines were coming, Samuel, and I realized they had not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the sacrifice. Instead of acknowledging what he did and repenting and being honest, Saul says, my men are deserting me, the Philistines are coming, and this is an interesting phrase. 
and that you didn't come out at the set time. It's kind of your fault, Samuel. I have not sought the Lord's favor, right? It's kind of your fault. Does this sound familiar? It does because we've heard that line before. What did Adam say when he and Eve's sin of eating the forbidden fruit found them out? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I didn't put her here. You did. It's your fault. Let's be honest with ourselves. It probably also sounds familiar because we've fallen for this enemy's tactic here as well. We've likely used practically the same words to rationalize our wrongdoing. Well, I wouldn't have had to do that if you had done your part. Let's get back to Saul. He says, I have not sought the Lord's favor. Literally translated in the Hebrew, this kind of carries a whole different meaning than we might just look at this on the surface. In Hebrew, the phrase that Saul uses here is, I have not put God in a gentle mood. Ah. This is Saul's picture of God. Somebody that he has to manipulate or try to control or get into a good mood. So that God will do what? What Saul wants him to. See, he distorts the truth just enough as, as, it had just, as if it had just occurred to him that it would be a good idea to offer a sacrifice. And he hadn't done it yet, so he should. Instead of acknowledging the fact that he knew his job was to... Wait. And Samuel says, you have acted foolishly. You have disobeyed the command of the Lord. But it was a subtle disobedience, wasn't it? I wonder if you've ever been caught in the trap of subtle disobedience. I cheat on my taxes because, well, the government takes too much from us anyway. Or the government just wastes it. Like, can you believe they're giving it to do this or do that? Or everyone's doing it, so, so should I. It's just a little white lie. Or if I don't do it, someone else will. I was just trying to keep up with traffic. <laughs> or the all-time classic, labeling it a necessary evil. Have you ever thought about that phrase? Yeah, I just had to do it. It was a necessary evil. What? By calling something a necessary evil, it begins to look more and more necessary and less and less evil. You see, the first temptation is to redefine or rationalize the sin we're being tempted towards, to call some sin something other than what it is and thus make it sound less objectionable, more palatable, perhaps even desirable. This is true of almost any sin. Rudeness, hostility, and anger are called now self-expressions because it's a good to express oneself, and that's just the way I am. This, of course, becomes a justification for every type of ill-mannered, inconsiderate, and destructive behavior. Pride is better called self-esteem. Gluttony renamed the good life. Coveting is better understood as trying to improve one's standing, and perversions of all kind are labeled more palatably alternative lifestyles or experimentations. Saul could make sin sound like it was a good thing to do, too. I wanted to sacrifice to God. I wanted to offer something up. I wanted to do my spiritual duty. But Saul wasn't really trusting God in that moment. He was trying to use God like a genie in a bottle to grant him success in battle. 
Gradually, over time, he drifted bit by bit away from God's standard. Each step along the way seemed harmless in itself. In fact, he rationalized his behavior as being obedient and in no way affecting his standing before a just and holy God. In chapter 14, Saul makes foolish choices. He makes foolish oaths that almost end up killing his son, Jonathan. In chapter 15, Saul charts a course for his life that he will never really be able to escape. This is where the die really gets cast for Saul. This is maybe the classic picture in the Bible, not just of disobedience, but what, of my, what we might call stage two, rationalizing selective obedience. This is a person who tries to convince other people they're open to God and submitted to God and want to do what God wants, but the reality is they're not. They're just not. It's disobedience plus a refusal to acknowledge the truth. Once again, Saul is given very clear instructions from God through Samuel. This battle is an act of judgment from God upon the Malachites. Samuel tells him, one command, just one command. The enemy is so wicked that God says everything is to be destroyed, including livestock. Got it, Saul? Have you got it? What gets destroyed, Saul? Everything. What gets left, Saul? Nothing, right? And God gives the Israelites the victory. But Saul and the army spared Agag. That's the king of the Amalekites. And the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Saul wins the battle, but he opts for selective obedience. Saul clearly, deliberately disobeys God. And the implication is that he and his men did it for personal profit. They saved the best for themselves. Samuel, of course, shows up again. He has a way of showing up in the moments when Saul least wants him to be there, right? Saul knows he's blown it. How is he going to respond this time? A lady has written a book called Crumbs Don't Count, The Rationalization Diet. It's an actual book. In it, she declares that when it comes to calories, Crumbs don't count. Neither do broken pieces, leftovers, or anything you eat standing up and or with the refrigerator door open. <laughs> My own personal one is if you're eating it off someone else's plate, those calories don't count. It's selective obedience. We're diligently counting the calories, but these ones, <laughs> well, these ones don't count. Jesus told a parable that included this selective obedience. A master is going away for a season and entrusts his investments while he's gone to three servants. The first two double the amount that the master has given them to invest and were commended. Well done. But when he came to the third one, selective obedience takes over. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. I'm giving it back, just like you asked me to. I obeyed. I didn't lose a penny. Don't blame me. It's your fault. You were unreasonable. You had unrealistic expectations. You are the reason I didn't do anything, because of who you are. He doesn't get well done. He gets called wicked. Sobering stuff, isn't it? So Samuel shows up again. He has a way of showing up when Saul least wants it. Saul knows he's blown it. How is Saul going to respond? This is just classic. Saul says to Samuel, the Lord bless you. 
Oh, hey, good to see you, Samuel, buddy old pal. The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Hallelujah, amen, brother. Notice my new bracelets. What would Yahweh do, right? And Samuel says, really? What's that I hear in the background? What's that I hear in the background? Busted, right? And Saul says, oh, oh those cattle. Right? Oh, those ones. The soldiers brought those sheep and cattle back to sacrifice to the Lord. Yeah, that's right. That's what we're doing. We're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. And it sounds so holy and good, doesn't it? Once again, he tries to rationalize it with spiritual-sounding language, spiritualize his own disobedience. We spared the best to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Your God. Your God, Samuel. We've done it for your God. Not just the Lord, the Lord your God. You should be happy. You should be thrilled. We've done this for the Lord your God. Then he says, we totally destroyed the rest. We didn't just destroy the rest. You see that little word in there? We totally destroyed the rest. Samuel says a single word. As parents, we would use what some translations use. Enough already. Samuel just says, stop. Stop this insanity. Stop already. Saul, do you not understand what's at stake here? Don't you see what you're doing? You're rationalizing. You're trying to spin the truth. And in every word you say, you're doing damage. You're doing damage to your mind and to your soul and to your conscience. You're choking the Spirit's presence of influence right out of your life, and you're damaging God's community in the process. And all of these soldiers that you're supposed to be leading into obedience, you're actually leading them into disobedience. You are dishonoring God, and in every sentence, with every word, you get a little further away from the reality a little further away from the truth, a little further away from God. Saul, stop! But Saul won't stop. It's amazing. But I did obey the Lord. If you're a parent, you've heard kids say something like this. But I did what you asked me to. But I did obey the Lord. I carried out the mission he gave me. So Samuel speaks these great words. These are some of the greatest words ever uttered by a human being. Not just in the Old Testament. These are some of the most profound words about God recorded anywhere. You should have them underlined in your Bible. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And if anybody ever comes to you and say, we shouldn't listen to God, what does he go on to say? Listen. Listen. Listen to him. To obey is better than sacrifice. Listen to him. To have a heart that is open to God and to know and love God and do God's will, that's what God wants. It's not a list of religious duties that can and do change from one era to the next. Sacrificing wasn't a bad thing. It was actually commanded. But to do that and to think that makes you spiritual when you're at the same time withholding a heart of trust and love from God is just simply foolish. The same thing can be true of going to church or being involved in some program or ministry or reading the Bible for that matter. To do something that looks and sounds spiritual but to withhold from God your heart a heart that is tender towards love and trust is to be fundamentally unfaithful. 
And that's what Saul is. I just want to ask you at this point, what about you? Are there any subtle areas in your life where you've been withholding obedience from God by nursing resentment or bitterness, but you tell yourself it's just righteous indignation on behalf of justice? Or perhaps even last week for just a few moments, God did whisper something in your ear, but ever since then you've been rationalizing that it was the burrito you had, not God. Or sure, God tapped me on the shoulder about being baptized, but he didn't say when now, did he? Or is the truth about your life that for whatever reason, you're just kind of distant from God right now, but you've been rationalizing it under the excuse that you're just too busy, but that will change. I want to challenge you today that if there is a subtle disobedience in some area in your life, don't let it go. Don't let it go unchecked. Don't cloak it in pious-sounding rationalizing. Because Saul does. And it just starts him on this decline. At first, he just rationalizes subtle disobedience, then selective obedience. And then the next stage in his decline, he learns to rationalize the loss of intimacy with God himself. He learns to live with the fact that there's not much closeness anymore between them. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a troubling spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants suggest a remedy. You need to go back to the Lord. That's what you need to do. Oh, no, that's not what they say at all. It's clear. Now notice that they know what's going on here. This isn't some kind of, oh, we completely missed that one. It's clear that a spirit from God is troubling you, they said. Let us go find a good musician to play the harp for you. The music will quiet you, and you will soon be well again. Seriously. And they find a boy named David who can play, and when he does, sure enough, Saul is soothed, and he finds relief. David becomes one of Saul's armor bearers, so he's available to play whenever Saul gets troubled by his turning away from God. Saul had made it real clear. He didn't want God in his life. Saul was really clear about this. I think that the idea is that God is allowing, even causing Saul to experience deep pain in the hopes that Saul will repent yet and will turn back. But this much is clear, whatever else is going on, the rationalizing isn't working. Saul is falling apart. He suffers violent mood swings, paranoia, anger. But he discovers that whenever David plays his harp, it just soothes his spirits, and he feels better. Music has the power to do this, doesn't it? It can enable the heart to cry out to God like nothing else I know. Music is a wonderful gift and an important part of spiritual growth and development, but, but here's what I want you to notice. Saul was using it to avoid God, to avoid deeper issues with God. Whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David, that was a troubling spirit, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better. Ah, thanks, David. He rationalizes that everything is okay because he found relief. The problem is relief. Relief isn't an indicator of God's approval. Don't ever make that mistake. If you go from here with nothing else, go from here with this. Don't make the mistake that simply finding relief means that God is okay, that God has given his approval to whatever you've just done. 
This relief was not that inner peace that God promises when we are right with him. He just wanted relief from feeling the, the bad, feeling the, the, the things, the troubling that was going on inside of him. He wanted to feel better. But what he really needed was not just music to offer him temporary relief. What he really needed was to do some hard work, to examine his soul, to discover that his, his heart was being hardened and his distance from God was increasing. His sheer brokenness was growing and creating all of the pain in his life in the first place. He needed to repent, but he settled for relief. And people do that all the time. I wonder if some of you today are in spiritual pain, maybe because there's something wrong between you and God. Now, are there other reasons for pain? But I wonder if maybe some of you, like Saul, are in pain today because you've learned to rationalize the distance between you and God. And I can tell you with certainty, God doesn't want that. Maybe you've been troubled in spirit too. Maybe you've been on this kind of detour where you're just looking for relief. I just need relief. Just find relief anywhere, any place, any shape, I'll take it. When the pain increases, you just try to get distracted like Saul did. You work a little harder, or you watch TV a little more, or you start taking more and more drink, or you buy something, or you turn on some music just to try and feel better. And I wonder if today you'll have the courage to ask one question. God, how are things between you and me really? I wonder if you'll have the courage to do what Saul didn't do, and that is to spend some time alone and to face whatever is troubling your spirit and to move towards intimacy with God. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that just for a moment here. Let's take a quiet moment with God about this. On the screen, you're going to see some of the typical rationalizations we use. I want you just in a moment of quietness and in prayer before God, follow through with this, and then you'll see there's action at the bottom. Ask God, A, ask God to reveal the rationalization that you're doing about sin. C, confess it to him. T, turn away from him. Another word for that is repent. Turn away. Turn back to God. Take a moment just to walk through this list. See if God would point out something to you.
it's all just kept sliding. He didn't walk through this list. He didn't take action. He just kept sliding. He started so well and he learned to just kind of rationalize subtle disobedience and then rationalize selective obedience and then he learned to rationalize a lack of intimacy with God. He just got used to it and tried to distract himself and get relief instead of facing the truth and repenting. In the end, he died estranged from the one God and estranged from that one God's people and estranged from the one task that his God had asked him to do. We're told that when the prophet Samuel died, all Israel wept. The whole country simultaneously broke out in weeping because of all that Samuel had become, because of his fiery courage, his boundless, endless love for all the people and his passion for God. They wept because of how much they would miss those things. They wept tears of gratitude that the life of Samuel had been lived among them. They wept tears of thanksgiving for who they had become because Samuel had been in their midst for a while. When Saul died, we're told that David had to command Israel to sing a funeral song. He had to command them. This time the people wept because of all that Saul had not become. The people remember what Saul might have been and wasn't, and how their story might have been so different if Saul had given God his best, his heart. And they wept tears of regret when he died. He reigned 42 years, and when he died, all that promise was wasted. It was just thrown away. And it's a funny thing about Saul. He didn't set out to do it. He just rationalized his way around giving God his full devotion. I hope you don't make that same mistake. I hope today that if God is setting a task before you, you choose to obey. I hope if God is saying, just trust me and wait, that you don't give in. I hope that if you've been disobedient to God, you don't try to rationalize it, you don't try to hide it, you just fall on your knees and confess it, and you will be free. I hope if God tells you the time has come for you to let go of something, you don't clutch onto it, but you open your hands and let it go. Most of all, I hope if God is telling you there's a distance between you, I hope you give God your full devotion as a child of his. I hope when you come to the end of your life, and you will one day, that people cry the tears of Samuel and not the tears of Saul. I really do. Let's stand together and sing.